today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guests today. We're doing this in celebration of a, the release of a book on John Barry's music called Music by John Barry. Now, before we begin, I want to point out that I've, I've tried to get the authors of this book to come on the program, but we just couldn't work out schedules. Um, this book is written, actually, by perhaps the foremost authorities on uh, John, John Barry. Uh, the three authors are Pete Walker, Jeff Leonard, and John Burlingame. But let me assure you, we have the next best thing with our guests today. And that's right, plural, guests. We have two, for lack of a better word, we have two super fans to discuss this book and people that have probably far better knowledge of his music than I do. So I hope that all of you will join me in welcoming Tony Weeks and Stephen Wollstone to the program. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Frank. Good to have you with us. I really appreciate it, and it's been fun. I've had fun reading through the book, as I, I'm assuming you have as well. So this will this will be a great retrospective over his career, as well as kind of giving our listeners a sense of what the book is all about. Now, to kind of get started, just briefly, maybe we'll start with you, Stephen. If you would just kind of give us a little bit of an idea about uh, why you have this affinity for John Barry's work. I know you love lots of different composers, but I think you have a particular soft spot in your heart for John Barry. Just tell me a little bit about what your affinity for his music is. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because, um, you know, I am a fan of a lot of film composers. And to be quite honest with you, a lot, a lot of film composers do demonstrate what I would call, um, you know, um, a broader range in the medium of music for orchestra. But there's something about the way John Barry writes that makes his music a little bit more involving to me than a lot of other movie music I and mean, a lot of other movie music is technically excellent but it just doesn't speak to me the way that that john's music speaks to me um it you know there's something very soulful about the way that he writes so that even if the music isn't particularly complicated if, if the music isn't particularly technical it nevertheless speaks and i think that's what a lot of people who do admire john barry's music Fine, you know, it, it, it's not about his 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 
brilliance with the technicalities. It's the fact that his music speaks and it speaks in a particular way that works. Wow. I mean, wow. I mean, I, I couldn't have expressed it as well as you have, but I think I, I share your thoughts exactly. Um, Tony, how about you? Why the affinity for uh, for John's work? Yeah, I mean, exactly the same reasons. I mean, I love other film composers, people like Bernard Herrmann and that, but John Barry, for me, as Stephen says, he speaks to me. It's like his music has actually been written for me. It's actually been there through many different times of my life, both painful and, and happy and whatever. And uh, I mean, there, there were a lot of times when I would have the score and I wouldn't see the film for years. You know, I didn't need to see the movie that he that he did somewhere in time particularly. I didn't see that for about 10 years. But that, oh, wow. that, that score completely related to everything that was going on in my life. And I... There are no other composers, some touch on it, um, but for me, it's literally like he has written that music personally. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, yeah. And I, I guess it's because, I mean, as he says, and it's highlighted in the book, that, you know, he does write for, for the characters, um, you know, rather than just the film. I think a lot of film composers just write film music to go with the action or whatever. He, he does it through through you know, his his feelings for the characters. And that pervades for me. Yeah, I mean it's like it's like when he writes music, it's it's not like the music is coming from quote unquote a composer. It's like it's coming from somebody who has a love and an affinity for movies and the people in the movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and it 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 tells a story, doesn't it? I mean musically you really kinda start to understand what the story is, whereas with some other composers, and I don't mean to be critical, but sometimes I don't really know what the story is. I kind of can figure out what's happening on the screen, but Barry seems to be able to connect not only with the characters, but being able to kind of help you understand and tell the story. So it's, yeah, I think we're all in the same wavelength there. Yeah, yeah it's and I, because if you think about it, you look at a single piece of Barry's music, and there is a journey from a beginning to an end. Yeah. You know, it's not just music that starts and and, and occupies a space statically, which is what a lot of modern movie music does. You know, the music goes somewhere. It starts somewhere. It moves in a certain way. It gets somewhere. That's true of both individual pieces of music and the score as a whole. Now, some people have criticised uh, John Barry for having a similar sound from movie to movie. And whilst that is valid, the point of the fact is, though, is that even if there's a similar orchestration going on or a similar kind of sound going on, the fact of the matter is every score is taking a journey which matches that movie you couldn't just take the music just because it has some stylistic similarities and put it in another movie because the movement in that music the place it starts the place it goes the place it finishes up is very much specific to to the scene when we're talking about an individual cue to the, to the whole movie when we're talking about a whole score but both at, at both levels though there is a sense that we're going someplace with this music yeah, Tony, let me ask you, I, because one of the things I find is, and I, I remember I heard John Barry in, a, in an interview talk about, especially the Bond films, although I don't necessarily agree with his assessment on this, but but with a lot of action movies and those sorts of things, they require you to write a lot of what he called cue music, mm-hmm. which, which struck me as not really having a lot of melody. It was somehow being able to communicate what you're seeing on the screen, but it didn't involve melody. And, and I think one of the things I really like about his 
his scores is that almost everything has a melody to it throughout the entire score, which is kind of unusual. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, for me, if you listen to almost all of his music, you could probably put lyrics to it. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, he, he's, a, he's a songwriter uh, as well. Uh, um, um, you know, Summer in Time, once again, I'll use that. Literally, da, 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 somewhere in time, you know, it, yeah. it was there. Um, and I think I'll just add as well, when, when I said that, you know, often I don't, I hadn't, I didn't see the film say for about 10 years or whatever i wasn't then when i saw the films i all of a sudden i thought well yeah that makes sense i already kind of saw what sort of scene that would be wow, uh, wow. you know and i don't really have that with other composers it, it's literally like when, when i've seen the movie and it's like my god yeah that's exactly kind of how i imagined it would be um yeah, yeah. It, he literally paints a picture within his music Okay. okay. And to your point, Frank, about cueing music, I mean, here's the interesting thing. This is, this is something I find absolutely fascinating, is that you would not particularly call John Barry an action movie composer. You wouldn't mm -hmm. particularly call him a blockbuster movie composer because mm. you know, he's much more in the hearts and minds of, uh, of, of people undergoing transformational journeys in their movies. But having said that, and yet, somehow, he has written the most exciting of the James Bond music. And it's like, how is that? How is it that this guy that we don't think of as an action music writer is writing some of the most exciting music for a big blockbuster franchise? Because oh, yeah. you, know, you look at something like The Escape from Pete's Gloria in, exactly. in Bond and Majesty's Secret Service. You know, yeah. That is actually it's a slow 4-4 four, four time signature. You know, There's no complicated rhythms. There's no jumping around with, with time signatures. Uh, and it's actually a relatively slow piece of music, and yet it's incredibly exciting, mm -hmm. especially it when it works. Yeah, yeah, it works. It Do works. you know that's extraordinary? Because that's exactly the very piece of music that I would have said exactly. That sums it up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it. instead of instead of talking about it, maybe we should listen to some stuff too. I, I should point out, by the way, I found it interesting. My guest did not choose a single James Bond film. Or it's music, which I found kind of interesting. Uh, not that they don't love it, but it just it wasn't one of the top five, I guess, for them that they wanted to chat about. And what's interesting, I wanted to point out that our guest, Stephen, chose everything from the 60s, which a lot of people say that was maybe his most creative decade, most variety, I guess, if you will, in sounds and, and uh, scores that he wrote. And Tony actually did a nice job of selecting one score from each decade, from the 60s all the way up to the thousands. So... We're going to get a chance to really hear a lot of variety today, and I, I think that's terrific. So, Stephen, let's start off with uh, one of the first ones you chose, and it's connected to uh, a lot of people don't realize he wrote a lot of music for commercials and also for television shows. And the one that you wanted to talk about was there were two shows that were done in the 60s, Elizabeth Taylor in London and Sophia Loren in Rome. I think you wanted to play a cue called, uh, I think it's from the Sophia Loren uh, program called Ballet. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that and what, what do you think it, uh, why does it deserve our attention from the book and, and for our listeners? Well, the thing is, you know, people don't often think of these scores because the films that they accompany are very rarely seen. They're not major movies. And in a way, they're a bit of television fluff, really. Um, mm -hmm. But what's interesting about them, though, is that, in a way, musically, they're really quite delightful. I mean, you're not going to get this really deep drama 
that you would get uh, in some of the film schools that would come later. But they really show off uh, John Barry's ability to write uh, you know, some quite nice light pieces of music that you can really get into. And I think the other reason why I, I wanted to uh, pay these a visit is because there is an interesting revelation in the book, which is that these films, which have been unseen by most fans for many, many years... Are Myself included. Yeah. yeah, they're actually coming out on Blu-ray. So we're going to get a chance to finally see these things. I mean, there have been some low-quality prints going around, but you know, network, DVD, uh, Blu-ray, are actually going to put these things out. And so I thought, well, let's visit the music from those in anticipation of that Blu-ray re- release. And, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, were these were these American television uh, shows or or, English, or UK? Um, I, I, I mean, I know they were shown in both places, but I don't know who was like responsible for the production. Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. Um, I, I'm, if I'm absolutely sure, if I'm absolutely honest, I'm not entirely sure exactly which way you put it around. I mean, I know, for example, that with Sophia Loren in Rome, and again, I'm referencing uh, the book that we're celebrating today, um, you know, it was broadcast on ABC TV in the USA on the 12th of November 1964. Now, whether that makes it an, a, a, you know, more of an American production than a... Who knows, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I'm not entirely clear on it, if I'm absolutely honest. Okay. Okay. Well, hey, let's have a listen to this. This is a, uh, again from the uh, television show Sophia Loren in Rome. The cue is called the ballet. So let's uh, sit back and have a listen.
Tony, your uh, your first selection was uh, also from the '60s, and it's a film I haven't seen. I'm familiar with the score a little bit. It's not one I visit a lot, and maybe I should reconsider that. Now, the film I'm talking about is called The Whisperers. Um, let's see the uh, the cue you chose. I'm gonna find it here. Where is it? Oh, uh, yeah, we danced home again. I think is what the cue is called. Tell us a little bit about yeah. your affinity for that and why you wanted to highlight that from the book. Well, one. Once again, I mean, the reason why I didn't do Bond, because it's almost like it's kind of obvious, really. The Whisperers is, is, is a wonderful movie. Um, it's very close to my heart. It, it's kind of how I remember the 60s, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, also, you know, as a nurse, I've, I've actually nursed people like uh, the, the main character, um, played by Damien Evans. And... I've literally, you know, I've nursed people that hear voices um, and it's it's a horrible thing. But within this film, um, it it isn't a horrible film. It, it actually shows that these voices are quite important to her um, because it's a very, very bleak existence that she's got. She's living alone. She's got a, a husband that is, is, has gone. He's disappeared. He's been in prison. A son that's that's pretty nasty. And it, it's just about this, this, it's just this beautiful sense. It, it's incredibly bleak, and yet there's a warmth running the whole way through it. And mm. John Barry's music, I think, really sums that up. All right, well, let's have a listen to this. This is again from the film called The Whispers. The cue is called We Danced Home Again, and of course is written by the person we're focusing on today, John Barry. Thank you. 
Stephen, your next selection is is one of my favorites as well. <clears throat> it, um, I finally saw the movie. I'm kind of like what Tony was saying. I, it probably was like 20 or 30 years after it came out. I finally got a chance to see it, and it really helps. It really it it really enhances the film and setting the atmosphere. I'm talking about the film called The Epcris File. Yeah. Um, let's see. You would uh, where is this? What you had chosen was uh, oh gosh I can't find it where is it let's see what what was the cue you wanted yeah the piece I chose was the meeting with Grant B ah, and- yes I see it okay tell us a little bit about uh, what your thinking was on choosing that one well I mean the Crest file is probably when you go beyond uh, James Bond and when you go beyond his Academy Award winning scores the Crest file is probably the one that really stands out next because you know. John Barry got typecast a little bit in the whole spy movie genre, but that's because he found a great sound for it. Um, and the wonderful thing about the Ipcrest file is in many ways, it shows the best of that sound that he discovered, you know, that, that sort of jazz swing to it. Right. It, it, those deep chords, which are suspenseful and brooding. Uh, it has a great melody on it, uh, played by an instrument which obviously evokes um, you know, the Cold War era. You know, it's, it's just a fabulous score with a fantastic theme that has these great orchestrations. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating about the Ipcress file, and I've often pondered about it, is it's obviously not a great big orchestra. You know, th- th- there isn't like a thousand strings on this thing. You know, uh, it's actually a very small orchestra as far as I can tell. And, you know, we're in the era where we re-record a lot of film music that's been lost. As far as I know, the original master recordings of the Ipcress file uh, have been lost, but I could be wrong about that. I, I have no doubt that some people will correct me on that if that's not the case. But my understanding is that all the CD releases of this score were actually mastered from vinyl sources because of a lack of tape sources. Wow. And, and, you know, and I've often wondered, given that it's a relatively small orchestra, you know, could that be re-recorded and could it be done well? I honestly don't know the answer because this is one of those scores where, you know, the particular characteristics of the performers is also important. You know, John Leach on the cymbal and the way he played it is important. You know, this isn't one of those scores where you can just put the 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 the, uh, the score in front of any old orchestra and get the sound that you want. This is very much about it has to have that particular kind of swing to it, it as to have that particular kind of performance characteristics. But nevertheless, I am fascinated with the idea, could this be recreated in the modern age? Nevertheless, it's a classic Barry score. It shows how he, you know, those wonderful sounds that he created. It's quite a brooding score when you think about it. And the piece that I've selected uh, is the scene where, um, where, where, Harry Palmer uh, meets Granby and they have this fight on the steps of the Royal Albert Hall. And it's an interesting way of scoring it. It's kind of like an opposite of Bond way of uh, of scoring this kind of sequence. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the instrument. I'm trying to, Cinnabalm, is that how it's pronounced or forgive me? Cymbalom. Yes. Cymbalom. I might not be be pronouncing it correctly. (laughs) But I mean, I just... That's one of the things I think that highlights uh, certainly his early career is is choosing these unusual instruments or sounds that uh, that nobody else has ever tried before, uh, and it fits. It really fits, and this is an example of where it does fit. And uh, yeah, I think you've described it beautifully. Let's. And I, I was trying to look it up too. I don't see in the book whether or not they mention how many how, uh, how many people were in the orchestra. But I also found it interesting uh, for those of you that follow James Bond. This was a uh, 
this was a Harry Saltzman pr- production. And Harry and John Barry a lot of times kind of had a, a difficult relationship, for lack of a better way of saying it. But it's interesting how when it came to scoring his non-James Bond movie, but it was still a spy thriller, who did he go to? But he went to John Barry. Yeah. So mm-hmm. let's uh, let's have a listen to this. This is called Meeting with the... This is called me. Meeting with Grant B. in Fight, and it's from the film called The Ipcris File. Let's have a listen.
Tony, you've also uh, happened to choose one of my uh, favorites. So this is from the decade of the 70s. Um, gosh, I can I can remember the first time that I saw this film. Well, when I saw the film and then I got the uh, the soundtrack album, there was like a bunch of music that, that was missing. And I can remember going to a, I don't know if you have them in the UK, but we, we had drive-in theaters. And uh, uh, where you would, you know, you, you would sit in your car and watch the movie and then there'd be a speaker that you would hang on the window. Well, when I when it came to King Kong, I wanted to get all that music or at least be able to listen to it without having to watch the movie. And again, we're talking the 1970s. This wasn't this before videotape and all that. So I I have the speaker on my window and I brought a cassette recorder with me. And and, and every time I knew this music was coming up that I wanted to record, I'd I'd record it on the cassette tape. Yeah. It sounded horrible, <laughs> but but at least, you know, I was able to get it. Now, thankfully, uh, there is, as most of us know, there's been a release a re-release of the score and, and, and included a lot of additional cues that weren't on the original recording so anyway I, I love this one so i'd be curious tell us a little bit about your thinking on uh choosing uh, the cue from uh, king kong just to go back to that thing with you recording um the only way i used to get my music uh, if, if uh, i used to record off the television and yeah. i've got loads i've got loads of cassettes uh, and every time i switched on the microphone uh, we used to have a budgerigar at my house <laughs> it never failed he would always start singing but anyway that's by the by king kong uh once again i mean this is really a very personal thing for me um it's his first major american uh film mm. after he moved out to to america and it, it was it was a blockbuster movie i mean i remember seeing this uh in my hometown of tunbridge wells in the days before you booked to go and see a film and we literally queued uh, right down this hill near our local station, uh, waiting to get in. Uh, myself and my nephew went to see it. So I was so excited about it. Um, and then, I mean, the music is just extraordinary. I mean, it's it's almost operatic in parts, really. Um, but the personal thing is, it was also the very last movie that I saw and the last score that I got uh, before my dad died. And the morning that my dad died this piece that you're about to play um was just fitted that mood it's a scene where kong is in the tanker um i mean this is the original title from the uh from the soundtrack i think they renamed it for the uh two cd version um but yeah so you've got kong he's lost and he's frightened and he doesn't know what's going on and that's exactly how I was feeling the morning that my dad died. And this piece of music is just one of the most personal pieces of music ever. And it's from a, you know, it's from a monster movie. And yet, <laughs> once again, it spoke to me. It, it literally became part of my world. Um, and I, you know, when I hear it now, I still have a bit of a tear. Um, yeah, and I, I can relate movie. to what you're saying. Isn't it interesting how, and I'm sure we all do it to one degree or another, that there, there are certain scores or certain cues that come from certain scores that not only connect to the movie, but maybe yeah. connect to what was going on in our life at the time. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I, I totally understand. Totally understand. What's interesting, too, if I remember right, I think this is talked about in the book. This was one of his most unusual projects because I guess he was getting reels as they were, you know, still wet. And yeah. I think it was in the sequence of how the film was going to going to go. But in other words, he didn't see the complete product once and then start to build the score. He'd only see like real one, which was the first 20 minutes or whatever. 
he'd compose music for that and then he'd get real too. And then he, I mean, that must have yeah. been really challenging for him to do this. Are you familiar with that story? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I, I actually had the, the, the um, I, I've regained it actually in, in the last few years. There was actually a, the making of, of King Kong, a book that came out, which is actually how I found out he was going to be doing the score. Um, um, and there was a piece, a bit with, with the uh, the stuff on the island, where they're all going Kong, Kong, where he was talking about it. I think he was actually present in order to get the feel of, of, of it. So, yeah, he it, it was. But do, do you know what? I think that probably, I think he must have loved it because I think that's the thing. He's not the usual kind of film composer. So I would mm. imagine that for him was really exciting. Um, yeah. You know, and, and once okay. again, so, yes, yeah, so, sorry, but yeah, just once again, it, it, it's an extraordinary thing that, yeah, he did it in that way, but he still captures this beautiful romance, you know, the Beauty and the Beast uh, part of it. Yeah. It's stunning. Well, now, let's have a listen to this. This is from the 1976 uh, film King Kong. The cue is called Incomprehensible Captivity. Let's have a listen. <laughs>
Stephen, your next uh, selection uh, is also, I'm reminded of the fact, again, referencing what Tony said earlier, and I already related on another film, Deadfall, I never, geez, I never saw that for, I must, maybe, the, I can't remember when I saw it, but it had to be at least 30 years after it came out, and finally got a DVD of it or something like that. Uh, and I always was, uh, you know, the obvious choice to choose on this one would have, would have been the, the uh, Romance for Guitar and Orchestra, which is, you know, an, a, a masterpiece in itself and just a unique piece of filmmaking. But you didn't choose that one, which is fine. The, uh, let's see, the, the cue you chose was uh, The Meeting. So tell us a little bit about your love for that score and uh, why you wanted to highlight that one that's in the book. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm a teen, a little bit younger than Tony, so I, I came to John Barry a little bit later. <laughs> Thanks for um, rubbing it in, pal. Yeah, it. cheers. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but you know, when, when I was getting into Barry, though, uh, obviously I, I sought out everything that I could see and hear. Now, at the time, the uh, Deadfall LP was really quite expensive. Oh. I couldn't afford it. Um, but the, the movie was on uh, Yorkshire TV late one night, so I, I set up the video recorder, uh, captured it, and um, you know, and, and obviously when I got up in the morning, you know, this was about two o'clock in the morning. The movie was on; it was really wow. in the dead zone. Um, and when I got up in the morning, I just rewound the tape a little bit just to play through the the end title music, which I absolutely adored. And then I saw in the credit this name come up, Conductor, played by John Barry. And I thought, now this has got my interest. Uh, remember, I'm really new as a John Barry fan here. This is well before the internet. This is well before you, know, you could speak to a lot of people about this stuff. There were no books about John right. Barry at the time. Uh, so I literally just discovered that, that, that he has this on-screen appearance. Now, of course... Deadfall today is most famous for that robbery sequence, which is set to this, this piece of music, which doubles as concert music happening in the film and score music that's happening outside the film. It's, it's absolutely fantastic it that is. it's constructed. Brilliant to see John Barry perform it. You know, I'd really love to know more about Renata Tarago. Uh, the only thing I've really been able to find out uh, about her, apart from what she's done in her recording career, is the fact that, that Barry's wife at the time, uh, you know, Jane Birkin, didn't seem to like mm, her. I saw much. that quote in the book, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was a fantastic score. But, you know, when, I mean, like, like you guys have been talking about, I took a cassette recorder, I played all the cues from that movie onto a cassette recorder, and that's how I got to know it. And when, of course, that, that I finally managed to get my hands on the album, I found that, of course, there's a lot of music that was in that score that simply was not on the record. And this, this was quite common at the time. Um, but one of my favorite pieces, apart from that robbery music, and by the way, the reason I didn't pick it is because it's like 15 minutes long. Uh, I figured that might be too long. I understand. Program. Um, but there is this, you know, this track, The Meeting, though, does three things. First of all, it has this this beautiful piece of really pure John Barry in the second half of the queue. Uh, where the uh, where Michael Caine and and the other characters are looking over this beautiful set of diamonds, but also there's the, the, this lovely sequence where uh, Michael Caine catches the eye of Nanette Newman in a sports car. You know, it's just a fabulous cue. Now, whilst the film is now most famous for that robbery sequence and the score of that robbery robbery sequence, it does, of course, have a Shirley Bassey song which is right up there with everything that happens in a James Bond movie. And the score itself 
is just this this beautiful romantic but also suspenseful score which is led by this beautiful love theme which is not really adequately represented on the record and this is one of the reasons why i still hope and pray that we get a complete version of this score out one day um you know if, if i was a millionaire and i'm not badly i would certainly sponsor a new recording <laughs> of that thing you know um and uh, of course a, a, you know, an isolated music track got put on an american dvd for some bizarre reason which i don't understand when a british blu-ray came out they used a music and effects track so you got telephones ringing and footsteps all over it none of that was on this isolated score track on huh. the dvd so folks if you bought the UK Blu-ray to get the isolated music and you've got all these te- te- you know, telephones ringing and, and, and steps, go seek out the American DVD that came out before it because that, although it's an edited music track, it is still nevertheless a pure music track. So obviously I've got that ripped, but I still hope that one day the full score of Deadfall uh, manages to come out because I still think there's a beautiful theme in that which is not adequately represented. Yeah, no, I think you got a good point. And and you know what? We, we, can, we can be hopeful. I, I've been amazed and and really grateful of all the stuff that has come out of un, you know previously unreleased music and uh you know and the, the list is endless we could go through it but i mean I, i'm grateful we've been able to finally some of them are real surprises like the recent um not uh the julie andrews and omar sharif why am i drawing a blank here yeah yeah i'm shocked that that you know that that came out and you know so we we can hope we can hope that maybe the Deadfall will be one of those as well. well let's let's have a listen to this. the uh, The cue is called "The Meeting." It's from the uh, film nineteen sixty eight film called Deadfall, and of course, it's written by John Barry.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. Okay, fellas, I'm going to take a little liberty as being your podcast host, and I'm going to volunteer maybe one or two different scores that I wanted to highlight that are talked about in the book. Uh, it's already been mentioned once. I think Tony's mentioned it one or two times. Uh, the film I'm talking about is Somewhere in Time. I got to tell you a little story. I, uh, my sister and I went to see a, an advanced screening of this movie, and it was a double bill. First was Somewhere in Time, and if you wanted to, you could stick around and watch Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. Wow. Well, needless to say, I didn't stick around for Xanadu, but <laughs> what, what, I, what, I, what I always remember about this, it's just a funny little story. My, my sister, she just she, she had to go to the restroom, you know, about two-thirds or more into the movie. And she said, I'll, I'll be right back. Tell me what happened. Well, when she stepped out is when Christopher Reeve sees the penny. And when she comes back, all of a sudden, Christopher Reeve is back in present day. And, and I'm trying to explain this to her you know, while the movie's going on. It was next to impossible. And so I, I'll just always remember that about uh, seeing it for the first time. The book highlights a couple of things that I think are, are interesting about this film. One that I guess Jane Seymour played a role in, uh, in getting him the assignment. Uh, they also talk about... Um, the fact that both his parents had died recently prior to this film. And there are some people that speculate that that had an influence on his work. Uh, another story I'll tell you was that uh, when they, uh, at uh, Carnegie Hall, when they had his uh, 70th birthday celebration, they had a Q and a in the afternoon before the concert. And I went to it and there was a guy who got up and asked him a question and said, uh, is it true that, uh, that uh, your parents dying on the, uh, you know, right before you wrote the score for this, had a great influence on how you wrote the, the music? To which Barry replied, none of your damn business. <laughs> so, yeah, I said, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So anyway, a couple of things. What, what, what I wanted to choose was, I think in his concerts, 
I seem to recall the one that I went to. He said, well, this is the longest cue I've ever written. And yet on the, the recent re-release of the score, which by the way, if you haven't gotten it, I would highly encourage you to do it because it has a lot of un- previously unreleased music. I'm going to combine, combine the three cues that I think he used to play in concerts from beginning to end. Uh, if you have the CD, it would be uh, uh, cuts five, six, and seven. The, the cues are called June 27th, Room 417, and then finally the journey back in time. And this is a, a, when Christopher Reeve is trying with all his might to, uh, to time travel and the journey that he goes through. Um, and it's just the music really communicates what's happening what's happening on the screen, but also what he's going through. Uh, and I just think it does a splendid job of this. So if you don't mind, sit back and relax and listen to this masterpiece. It's a crime that this wasn't nominated for an, uh, an Oscar. Just absolute crime. But let's listen to these three cues. I think you'll enjoy it. And again, it's from the, uh, the film Somewhere in Time, a film that uh, and a score that John Barry always said he got more letters on this one than any other. And it went one of his best-selling, if not his highest-selling uh, album as well. So... Anyway, let's uh, let's have a listen to this. This is again from the film Somewhere in Time.
Some more. Yeah, yeah. You know, please, Frank, if please. I can comment on you know, this, this. This speaks to something I was saying earlier. Because you know, time travel is something you would normally consider to be a science fiction concept, but there's no hint of science fiction uh, in, in yeah. that music. You know, because John Barry always going after the human, the person. You know, what are they experiencing? What's their transformational journey? So he's right in the head and heart of Christopher Reeve trying to will himself back in time. And I, I just think that's just a perfect expression of, of how John Excellent Barry Yeah, I completely agree. And of course, he went and did it again later on with Peggy Sue got married. Yeah. You know, and I'm yes. like, traveling. You know, we, we always talk about Back to the Future, but, you know, he did it before, but he did it in a very different way. Yeah, you're right. Spot on, spot on. Well, that was the beginning of the de decade of the 80s when Somewhere in Time came out. Move a few years, uh, uh, I guess not maybe not that far ahead, but Tony, the one that you chose from the 80s is another favorite of mine. Another score that it's criminal that it wasn't nominated. Absolutely criminal. Because yeah. it's just, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a masterpiece, especially for the genre. The film I'm talking about is Body Heat. And uh, you wanted to go ahead and uh, let's see here. We were debating about this. I think we're going to play the uh, the cue called Go Get Him. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your love for this score and uh, why you wanted to highlight that as one of the uh, scores that's highlighted in the book. I mean, growing up, I mean, I, I, I've always been a, a, a film geek and, and I love all the old films and noir films like um, Double Indemnity and, and that. I, I always loved them love jazz and, and a lot of that was to do with with, with john barry with stuff like from diamonds are forever and the americans or americans uh so yeah when i heard this score which i, I heard for the first time at, you know at the cinema um I, I i was just blown away i i just thought this is amazing it was literally ticking everything i love the saxophone i mean ronnie lang's ronnie lang's saxophone solo is just divine and then on a very different level kathleen turner I, my god i mean i literally oh ho -hum, kathleen turner oh. yeah i literally <laughs> i mean i don't know whether you're going to be able to put put this out there but there's a bit and i i, I always make julie laugh and if it, we haven't watched it together for a long time but there's a bit where she knocks over the slush puppy onto her chest and he goes to get up some paper and she just says to him, don't you want to lick it? Yeah. And the amount of times I've been very close to the television thinking, ah. <laughs> so I don't, you could, you can edit that if you want, but you know, my wife no, no. knows that. So it's okay for, for that. But then to update it, the sadness was, uh, and I have put it on, on, on the group. Um, I told James Caraccino when I met him over here when we were at a concert. I actually got to meet Kathleen Turner for the first time in 2011 oh, after wow. she did a, a, um, a play over here called Bakersfield Mist uh, with the guy that plays the Emperor from Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and oh. um, I met her. She was horrible. <laughs> it was <laughs> one of those moments where, you, you know, be careful of meeting your heroes. Luckily, I've met John Barry three times and he was a delight. He was lovely. So I'm glad I would be mortified. But she, she was horrible. I don't know whether she was having a bad day, but literally she came out. She just yet bellowed one per person, meaning autographs. Uh. 
she came up to me. I got my body heat soundtrack out. She signed it. And I said, would you mind if I just had a photograph with you? And she just went, no, and just went into her limousine. And that was it. You know, no kind wow. of like, no, I don't do photos or whatever. It, it, you know, could be that she was having a bad day. But yeah, it was it was a bit depressing that. But the movie I still watch to this day. Uh, I, I probably watch it once every year because it's amazing. And the score is sublime. It, it is. It's amazing. And and uh, for, for those of you that haven't, I don't know if it's still available or not. This was another example of a a score that was finally officially released on CD. And on top of that, uh, you know, there was a bootleg. Well, in fact, in the book, it doesn't position it as a bootleg, but I thought it was. Back in the 80s, there was a, an album that came out and it was at 45 RPM, which was weird because it was an album size. And I had that. And but they make it sound like it was legitimate. I guess it was, but I know Barry disavowed it because he didn't like the mix or something like that. I, I think that the, the guy that produced it basically he he just didn't use any of the, of the mix, so it, it was. I mean, I've got it. I mean, that, that you know, it was the only way of, of of getting that score at the time. Oh, yeah. But now, when you listen to the CD, it's 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 a much better recording. So oh, and and what I find fascinating for those of you that don't have it and want to, try, I would encourage you to get it. You know what I loved was the. Uh, the demos that they included, you know, with like uh, three or four musicians just to kind of give the director a sense of how it was going to sound. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, it's incredible to think. And you, and you can just tell by all of those demos, just what he was building up to, um, yep. you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's incredible score. Brilliant. All right, let's, yeah. Let's have a listen for ourselves. This is again from the uh, film called the uh, body heat. And the cue is called, Go Get Him.
Our conversation goes on much further. We had such great fun and had a lot of great things to talk about and more music to play and more things to talk about with the uh, concerning the book Music by John Barry. So instead of making this one long episode, I thought I'd break it into two parts. So I'm going to end this here and uh, basically call this part one of the episode. Uh, I, I hope you all will uh, be patient with us as we uh, put together part two, which will come out probably... Yeah, maybe a week after this one is released. Uh, but I think it'll be well worth the wait. Uh, my guests were just terrific. Uh, both Stephen and Tony really gave a lot of great insights, not only about the scores, but also the the, the value that the book mu- Music by John Barry provides to the reader. So I hope you've enjoyed it to this point. Uh, we're going to continue with part two, as I say, here in just a little bit. Uh, So again, my thanks to my guests, Stephen and Tony, for sharing their insights and their love of John Barry's music. And I hope you all will join us for part two when it comes out. So I guess there's only one thing left to say at this point, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?